Survival of the fittest, nature red in tooth and claw. Only the strong survive. When you think about evolutionary theory, some of these old adages might come to mind. For Christians who try to reconcile conceptions of a God who created the world and deemed it as good, the violent and hyper-competitive vision of creation in some narratives on evolutionary theory can be particularly troubling. What has been even more troubling are the ways this narrative has been used to fuel different iterations of what is commonly called social Darwinism. Social Darwinism is a theory that argues that the fittest individuals and groups in society will survive and thrive while the unfit will die out. This idea has taken, dare I even say, demonic manifestation in the eugenics movement of the early 20th century, which advocated for the selective breeding of humans to improve the human race. The Jim Crow laws, which were a series of laws in the American South that enforced racial segregation. The Nazi Holocaust, in which the Nazis murdered millions of Jews and other groups they considered inferior. Maybe this is just the way the world is. Some Christians may see this simply as the effects of a fallen world. But if the world is this fundamentally broken, in what ways can we say, along with God, that it is good? And what about the Apostle Paul's argument in Romans 1 that since the creation of the world, God's power and nature is clearly demonstrable in his created order? In today's podcast, I'll make the case that the Apostle Paul wasn't wrong and that we don't have to completely abandon studying biology or the sciences. In fact, there may be another fascinating side to evolutionary theory that scientists are well aware of, but most lay people aren't. And does this underrepresented side of evolution actually help us to see the cross of Christ in creation? Let's explore together on today's episode. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. This is a listener-supported podcast. There are no advertisements, unlike probably most podcasts you listen to. I refuse to do ads, so the only way that this program can stay afloat, as well as my other work, where I write on my Substack page, produce videos on my YouTube channel, and actually, I've got a brand new thing coming up that I'm really excited to share with you about. I'm not quite ready to unveil it. I'm very, very excited for this brand new project. And I promise you will hear more about it in the near future. All of this is because people just like you decide to support the work I'm doing. So please consider clicking the link in the description to become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. You can find out more about this at the end of today's episode. And I'll say this, before we begin, maybe some of you are coming in, you're relatively new listeners to the program, and you come from a context that, like, just like me and what I grew up in, you were maybe told that the sciences, uh, the world of academic science, evolutionary theory, that this was essentially all the product of some grand conspiracy to turn people into atheists. For some of you, that might sound like hyperbole, but for me, it wasn't. That's actually what I heard in my Christian school context and church context growing up, like probably many of you who grew up in the 80s and 90s in, in, in evangelical Christian school and church environments. There's a lot of good things that happened there, but science wasn't one of them. <laughs> and um, the way we interpreted the Bible um, was, was probably actually very modernist. 
And so if you want to learn more about maybe a more extensive journey into reading the Bible on its own terms, there is a long list of episodes in my back catalog that you can explore. You can go back all the way to year one of the podcast, um, and there are some very early episodes on uh, Darwin, science, theology, and there are great introductions if you're just at the beginning of your journey. I'd also recommend to you, I did an interview a few years ago, again, you can find it in the back catalog, with Dr. John Walton. He is an Old Testament scholar. He is a scholar of the ancient Near East. He is a professor at Wheaton. And uh, I had a great conversation. John Walton's got a great series of books. They're called like the Lost World series, Lost World of Genesis 1, Lost World of Adam and Eve, Lost World of Noah and the Flood. I know he's probably got a couple more that I'm forgetting. That's a really good introduction into how to better understand Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in particular on its own terms if we are trying to be, take seriously the inspiration of Scripture and we say things like, well, the scriptures are inspired. What we're trying to get at is get as close as we can to the location of inspiration, which would mean that we step back and go, are my questions that I'm bringing to the text inspired? Are my questions that I might have in the year 2023 inspired? No, they're not. For example, if you want to go and ask, um, you know, the Job, for example, uh, the author of the book of Job, ask, the author of the book of Job, a question about quantum physics, and you think you're going to get an inspired answer to that question, you're just not. The author of Job had no idea about quantum mechanics. In fact, Augustine had no idea of quantum mechanics. Calvin, Luther didn't, John Wesley didn't. It's only been relatively recently that we've discovered this side of the world. And so when we go to the Bible, we need to go in humbly on its own terms, there's a great conversation with John Walton. Go back, listen to that. And um, again, if you're still in the beginning phases of your, your journey into trying to reconcile historic Christian theology with the sciences, there's a bunch of good episodes in the past that you can check out. If you're in this journey a little bit further along and you're at the point where I am and you are kind of exploring more of like the implications of the sciences and in wrestling with different ways that scientific data is being interpreted and how this fits into historic Christian theology, then today's episode really is for you. While the old narratives of Darwinian theory had placed competition at the forefront of popular discourse surrounding the driving factors behind evolution, there's been a growing focus in recent years on the significant role that cooperation plays in evolution. Cooperation in this context refers to a specific form of working together where one individual sacrifices their own reproductive success for the benefit of another in situations where there's a conflict of interests. It can be observed in various organisms all over creation, including bacteria colonies and social insects like ants and bees. But humans also demonstrate diverse forms of costly cooperation. Again, where an individual sacrifices 
some of their reproductive chances, uh, the chances of reproductive success, which is one of the driving motivators across species, right? We're driven by we want to stay alive and we want to pass on our genetic code. We don't need to make a moral pronouncement on these two observations from the sciences. We just know this to be true. And so with this understanding, when we step back and we go, well, what is cooperation? Cooperation is when someone takes a risk on their own reproductive success or their own survival in a situation where someone else's uh, reproductive success, someone else's survival might improve as a result of their sacrificial cooperation. Humans do this in everything from parenting to neighborhood watch programs to global networks of collaboration for ecological preservation. Humans do this all the time. One of the leading voices drawing attention to the role cooperation plays in evolution is Martin Novak. Martin Novak is a leading professor in mathematical biology at Harvard, and he's been one of the pioneering researchers in the study of cooperation and evolution. Novak proposed five possible rules that govern cooperation. Let's talk about each of these five now. The first rule is kin selection. What is kin selection? Kin selection recognizes that individuals are more likely to cooperate with their close relatives because they share a significant portion of their genetic material. According to Novak's rules and reasoning, kin selection works because individuals realize that by aiding their relatives' survival and reproduction chances, those individuals are indirectly propagating their own genes, increasing their inclusive fitness. The second rule that Novak proposed for cooperation is something called direct reciprocity. Direct reciprocity operates on the principle of tit for tat or eye for an eye, where individuals remember past interactions and then respond accordingly. For example, if someone helps us, we are more likely to reciprocate and help them in the future. And if you step back and you think about this, you probably realize how frequently your motivations to cooperate with somebody at work, in your neighborhood, in your school, runs off of this direct reciprocity programming, right? If somebody has done something kind to you, you are far more likely to reciprocate and help them in the future. This creates a sort of reward and incentive mechanism, which encourages cooperation. And it's just like a, it's like a tally sheet that we might not even be consciously aware of as we are processing decisions. If someone lets you in on the freeway, right, you're trying to merge and they let you in, you're probably more likely if further down the road they're trying to get in, uh, maybe off on an exit ramp, you're far more likely to let them off than the guy that maybe cut you off and then flipped you the bird. But where direct reciprocity plays an even more prominent role is where there are individuals who interact repeatedly. So for example, your neighbors. You know, you want to take good care of your lawn and property because it's a reflection on your neighborhood and the person that lives next to you. And the person that lives next to you is trying to hopefully take good care of their lawn and property. 
So if it's, you know, here in Minnesota in the fall, we get a significant number of leaves as most Midwestern um, cities do. And uh, it's just general rule of direct reciprocity in your neighborhood that you should take care of your leaves and try to keep them from getting onto your neighbor's lawn and to do so in a timely manner. If you do that, your neighbors are much more likely to directly reciprocate that sort of thoughtfulness in an act of cooperation together. The third rule that Novak proposed was indirect reciprocity. So if direct reciprocity operates on the principle of I'm going to specifically remember your past past interaction with me and I'm going to respond accordingly. Fit for tat, eye for an eye. I know an eye for an eye would make that a sort of negative interaction, but we can frame that positive more positively. Indirect reciprocity is based on reputation and it introduces the element of reputation into the decision-making process. Individuals assess the reputation of others and are more inclined to cooperate with those known to have a history of cooperative behavior. So whereas you might, in an instance of direct reciprocity, think, I remember specifically the instance in which, you know, um, my neighbors took out the trash for me when we were gone on holiday or vacation. And so I'm going to do the same for them on, on a weekend where they might be gone. Indirect reciprocity has much more to do with reputation building and where we operate off of maybe an imagined construction of a person. And this might be somebody that we've not even had any previous one-to-one engagement with. It might be just simply, again, someone that you've heard of and now you have to figure out if you're going to cooperate with them. You are much more likely to cooperate with someone that you have a, has a better reputation score. This strategy acts as a social control mechanism and it encourages individuals to maintain a good reputation by engaging in cooperative actions. The next rule that Novak proposed, which governs decision-making around cooperation, is what he called network reciprocity. Network reciprocity takes into account the structure of social interactions Individuals interact with others in a networked manner, such as a group, a a community, um, a a school, a a large corporation, um, a church, and they consider that network very prominently. You know, we don't act completely at random. We go through a decision-making matrix here where we are considering our connection to not only people like we might directly engage with every single day, but we also consider larger networks and cultures, subcultures that we're networked together in. And we do consider things like our reputation in that group and extended beyond into the network of groups when we make decisions about whether we're going to cooperate in self-sacrificial ways or not. This structure allows cooperation to be sustained because Individuals primarily interact with their neighbors and those in their network, and the benefits of cooperation within the network outweigh the costs of defection. So oftentimes, when we are going through a decision-making process of whether or not are we going to abide by the larger network's expectations, and are we going to cooperate for someone else's good, 
And we think about the pros and cons. And again, this happens so quickly. It's not necessarily something that we're like rationally doing all the time. It's most often the case that when we're banded together in this network, we are very aware of the cost of defecting from that network and not cooperating. Obviously, there's like a dangerous dark side to this kind of cooperation, right? Where people will oftentimes continually self-sacrifice in cooperation in a network where there might be a narcissist or a manipulative person at the top. Because as they're doing this, even though they might step back and like if you asked them in private, do you think that person at the top of the network, the top of the social hierarchy is a good person? If you asked them in private, they might go, well, I don't think so. It really makes it difficult for people to do things like leave dysfunctional workplaces or dysfunctional church communities or even maybe even dysfunctional denominations because the cost of defecting from the group appears to be so much more heavy than um than if they than if they were to can just continue and deal with perhaps the the abuse and the manipulation so network reciprocity is a very very strong motivating factor in cooperative decision making the fifth one that novak proposed was group selection Group selection suggests that cooperation can be favored at the group level. So typically in the past, in the older versions of Darwinian theory, much of it was focused on individual selection, the fittedness of an individual in their particular species. Were they doing the behaviors that would increase their individual likeliness of passing on their genetic code or... Um, or continuing to survive. But more recently, there's been a lot of increased focus on group selection. So individuals are obviously part of groups and collectives together. So what does the, what impact is there on the individual when the group behaves in a way that maybe brings about an an increase or a decrease in resources that increases the scarcity of particular resources necessary to survive. If it creates situations and circumstances where the individuals in the group are now less likely to thrive and to be able to reproduce and continue to pass on their genetic code and to, you know, when we think about this on the human level, not just among all of the animals in the created order, on the human level, we're often thinking about, well, what sorts of actions might my particular group take that will create this, a certain kind of life for my children? Will they be protected? Will they be safe? Am I going to continue to live in a particular neighborhood, in a particular community where this particular group is behaving in a way that isn't leading to the success of this particular individual, my son or daughter? So there are, there's increased attention that is being given to group selection. So again, group selection suggests that cooperation can be favored at the group level, leading to the survival and success of cooperative groups over non-cooperative ones. If cooperative groups outperform non-cooperative groups in terms of survival, reproduction, or resource acquisition, then cooperation can be favored and maintained within a population. 
Group selection recognizes that cooperation can provide advantages that contribute to the collective success of a group, even if it involves some sacrifice at the individual level. And this is where we begin to kind of rethink the whole social Darwinist narrative of survival of the fittest. Only the strong survive. That you should, you know, eliminate the weak, right? Um, What kind of culture does that create over successive generations who give no care to the most needy in their group? Will they actually outperform groups that will consider the needs of those who are less fortunate? I think the evidence, and we'll talk more about this, I think the evidence is, as we've seen in the last you know, 100 years as social Darwinist experiments have happened in pockets all over the world, that groups that function under this social Darwinist narrative actually underperform compared to groups that do incentivize self-sacrificial cooperation, concerns, and considerations for the less fortunate. In this way, cooperation emerges as the favored strategy in situations where individuals repeatedly face choices between cooperation with the group and defection from the group. This is because over time, the benefits of cooperation, such as mutual aid, resource sharing, and increased group cohesion outweigh the short-term gains of defection. Now, what does all of this have to do with the way of Jesus? Let's talk about that. I believe the way of Jesus provides us with a profound mythological structure for codifying the ideal forms of cooperation in the human species. And I want to clarify, when I use the word mythological, I don't intend to deny things like the historical reality of Jesus's bodily resurrection, which I affirm as a Christian. I say mythological in that it is an an overarching story. It is on top of it being historically true in the details of Christ's death and resurrection. I'm not denying that. It is also perhaps you might say in a more Jungian sense, an archetypal pattern that is true on another level of investigation. And I believe the way of Jesus is true at multiple, at every level of examination. To me, this this has to be a core Christian conviction, that every level of investigation and examination into reality, we must find that the way of Jesus is true. It can't just be true in the historical sense, but not in the ontological sense. So what I'm talking about here is how the way of Jesus is true on multiple layers and levels of examination. And I believe that we can see the way of Jesus as a mythological and archetypal structure for codifying the ideal forms of cooperation that the human species are to take on. And I want to make this case, and I'm going to do so momentarily, but I do want to acknowledge before I build this case that that the slain lamb is the archetype 
for human evolution, for the way humans are supposed to act in social groups, and for what will be ultimately maximally beneficial for our species. Before I do that, I want to acknowledge a caution given by the theologian Sarah Coakley. I'm a huge fan of Sarah Coakley's work. She's actually worked side by side with Martin Novak on uh, you know, evolution and game theory. She's worked side by side on kind of navigating how does like Thomistic theology, the theology of Thomas Aquinas, how does that fit within more modern understandings of evolutionary theory? Brilliant. She's a brilliant theologian. So I want to acknowledge a caution that she gives in assigning easy moral judgments to cooperation in evolution. When we hear a term like cooperation, Christians might quickly go and be like, great, cooperation. We can see people, not just people, humans, but we can see individuals. We can see this among chimps, among insects, among elephants. We can see, if we can see them cooperating sacrificially, potentially reducing some of their chance of survival or their reproductive success for the sake of another, we can instantly label that as a positive moral action. And Sarah Coakley would give a caution about this. And I want to acknowledge that before I even move into explaining why I do think there's there's hope in seeing the way of Jesus within the evolutionary process. Sarah Coakley cautions that we we should be slow to assign easy moral value judgments. The moral evaluation of cooperation requires discussions about the nature of what is considered good whether it is perceived in terms of overall utility, whether it's about adherence to moral rules or the cultivation of virtues. When we step back and observe cooperation in evolution happening, we have to acknowledge that cooperation can lead to outcomes that might be deemed both as positive and negative, depending on the convictional location or worldview of the one pronouncing judgment, is a band of wolves hunting together in cooperative strategy to isolate and to pinpoint the, 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 the weakest prey in a herd. Maybe they're hunting deer, right? And they isolate and they, they, they track down and they divide from the group the weakest, easiest deer that they can prey upon. Can we look at that cooperation that the wolves are doing and make an easy, like, moral judgment? Well, guess it kind of depends on if you're looking at it from the vantage point of the wolf or you're looking at it from the vantage point of the deer. So it's difficult to make these sorts of ethical pronouncements on the animal kingdom. Cooperation can enhance survival and increase the chance of propagating one's genes. It can also, though, involve competition, exploitation, and, and even violent aggression towards non-cooperators in the group. If you think about the example of kin selection cooperation, you may see close cooperation between kin bonded together to kill the kin of another group that's perceived as a threat to their family. If this kind of behavior took place among humans, and it actually does, 
most people in traditional religious communities and even secular humanists would consider that an immoral behavior. If kin bond together to kill the kin of another group that they deem as a rival, we would say if that happened in a human community context, we would deem that as immoral behavior, right? So this is very, very difficult. Now, others may argue that even assigning moral value to cooperation and evolution at all is altogether a categorical error, just like a competitive lion hunting and killing a gazelle is amoral, a pack of wolves hunting for their dinner that just so happens to involve a, uh, a deer and maybe the weakest of the deer. That's amoral. Some would take that position. In fact, I'd probably say that that's the consensus. It's, it's difficult. It, dare we even say a categorical error to impose human moral categories upon the animal kingdom. Now, one counter response to this from some Christians might be, hey, let's look at some of the biblical prophecies about what it would look like when the Messiah restores proper order to creation, that you have these images of lions lying down with lambs. There's a a prey and the predator side by side. Can we hope for in the age to come a, a sort of balance of creation, an order of creation where you no longer have predator and prey? I, I don't know. I, I hear people make that argument. I, I don't think it's completely uninformed. Do we have to consider that as the only option? I don't think so. And I do think that gets back to questions about, well, what kind of order did God make to begin with? And so you might even have these sorts of remnants from kind of the uh, young earth creationist models of understanding Genesis 2 and 3 in which, you know, they were, there was no, there was no, everything was a vegetarian. Every creature was a vegetarian in the garden. Of course, there's no biblical support for this whatsoever. I really don't know looking back. It was maybe imposing some theological ideas on the text. But there is nothing in the text that bears witness to that. There certainly isn't any claim that, you know, there were lions eating lambs there either, but you can't make an argument from silence. So, you know, there were certainly ways in which people look at, look back and they go, all right, well, in the garden state, in that picture, did we have any sort of carnivorous animals? And I, I you know, I, think that's a possible question, but I think the better question would be, let's actually look back at the biological record and the geological record. And as we can see, as far back as we can go, there have always been cycles of death attached to the well-being of other species. There have always been we're constantly in a cycle. I mean, from the big bang, we are in cycles of entropy the recycling of all the we we are living like we have the same amount of matter and energy in the cosmos as we did from the very moment how we want to measure that after the big bang there has been the same amount of matter and energy matter and energy this is thermodynamics matter and energy can't be created or destroyed it's just going through constant cycles so 
whether I'm eating a plant or eating an animal, I'm consuming something. And you know what? One day I'm going to die. My body's going to break down and worms are going to eat me. Like I'm going to be buried into the ground and I will decompose and my energy is going to go somewhere else. So I don't necessarily think we have to look at the images of the lion lying down with the lamb as necessarily saying that God's ideal created order has no eating of any kind. There's no predator. Maybe there is. Maybe there is. You know, I've got um, some vegetarian friends that believe that is, or even vegan friends that are saying that's God's ideal created order. And so we're trying to live into that now. I totally respect that. I don't think it's necessarily mandatory to believe. I think there are, there, there's room for divergent opinion among Christians as to whether or not we can assign these moral readings of what's happening in the animal world. What I would like to focus on though is how the cross and the way of Jesus should govern human moral rules and reasoning. I believe that is something we can definitively say that the gospel is speaking into. It's speaking into as Christ came as a human. God came in the flesh, not as a elephant, not as a bear. He came as a human. It is intended to govern human relations amongst each other and to govern human relations towards God. And yes, human relations towards the created order, but it is about our relationship to creation. I wouldn't necessarily say it's about us reordering all of creation in a particular way so that we are someday making, you know, all animals to, I don't know, what would they, you move all animals away from you know, being carnivorous and they're still eating plants, you know, do we get to some sort of engineering to the future in which there is, there is no, um, death at all? I don't, I don't think that that's the goal. What I do think we can confidently say is that the cross and the way of Jesus is speaking into this, the ideal forms of cooperation in the human species, in and among human beings. So while I do want to acknowledge the complexities that I've just admitted, the complexities in pronouncing moral evaluations to cooperation and evolution, I still believe the cross of Christ has something to say on the subject, and it offers the functional pattern for what cooperation should look like in the human species. So what I want to do now is I want to look at each of Novak's governing rules of cooperation, the five that we've already explored together, and to think together about what might the way of Jesus have to say about each of these rules. Let's say Novak is correct, and maybe he's wrong, maybe his theory's wrong, but I I just want to think through this together. Let's say Novak has properly identified this sort of, this rubric for cooperation these five governing rules. What does the way of Jesus have to say for each of the five rules that govern cooperation? The 
Let's begin with kin selection. Let's remember again what kin selection was about. Kin selection is about recognizing that individuals are more likely to cooperate with their close relatives because they share a significant portion of their genetic material and that by aiding their relatives' survival and reproduction, individuals indirectly propagate their own genes and increase their inclusive fitness. What might the way of Jesus have to say about kin selection in and among the human species? I think there's some revolutionary ways in which the way of Jesus reorients and properly structures that kin selection impulse. In the announcement of the gospel and the promise of God's making a new united human community in Christ, see Galatians 3.28, kin is now reorganized in the way of Jesus beyond the traditional markers of biological family and into a new identity where people from diverse tribes and tongues enter into one family under God the Father. Jesus, out of love for humanity, willingly sacrificed himself to save his kin. And the question then is, who are Christ's brothers and sisters? And the gospel announcement and the gospel answer to that question that we see throughout the New Testament, and we see these early New Testament churches wrestling with the implications of this, the earliest followers of Jesus took a new reality quite seriously. And that reality is this, that that God had reorganized and restructured human kinship around himself through his son and was making a new human community in Christ. The earliest followers of Jesus took this reality so seriously that they were willing to sell possessions, share what they had in common together, and to speak of each other as family members. It becomes Christian cliche in many churches to use the term brother or sister when talking to each other, but that was very much the reality of the earliest followers of the way of Jesus. They saw themselves in a new family. And this was so radical. The reorganization of kin boundaries was this weird offense to so much of the surrounding Roman world. They couldn't make sense of it. I think in many ways, pagan religions was like a way of codifying nature. And so it was very, very common. You, you, have, you continued to promote the, the bonds of kin selection that seem like it just is going to improve your family's genetic success and well-being. You're going to protect your kin. You're going to protect your genetic code. But what does it mean when people from different, bio, not biological, but different familial backgrounds are coming together and now reorganizing, and they're reorganizing across socioeconomic divides, across class divides, and they are now calling each other brother and sister. This is a weird, strange offense to the surrounding Roman world. But again, I think it's the archetypal pattern for what Christ is doing in human communities uniting them, uniting human families around himself, people from every tribe, tongue. It's a new kind of cooperation among kin. 
a new kind of kin in Christ. Let's remember what the second rule now is of uh, Novak's cooperation, and it was direct reciprocity. Direct reciprocity, again, to review, operates on the principle, again, of eye for an eye, tit for tat. Individuals remember past interactions with another individual and respond accordingly. If someone helps us, we're more likely to help them in the future. What does the way of Jesus have to say and to possibly tweak and redirect, direct, redirect, to redirect direct reciprocity in a way that's oriented to its maximal goodness? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. That's the words of Jesus, recorded in Matthew 7, 12, commonly referred to as the golden rule. This is like direct reciprocity codified. Like Jesus is saying, guys, it's always been right here in the law and prophets. I think Paul is making this argument in Romans 1. You can see this. So there's something to this direct reciprocity. If we can play on that and and almost there's like an inversion of it, right? The death of Christ embodies the principle of direct reciprocity. He shows selfless love by laying down his life for humanity and invites individuals to reciprocate that love by living a life of obedience, serving others, and reflecting Christ's character. The way of Jesus subverts the eye-for-an-eye form of direct reciprocity by calling followers to break what would be endless cycles of reciprocating harm through initiating acts of forgiveness that are then reciprocated back to you directly. So maybe in some ways, under the fall, we might just use direct reciprocity in assessing, is this person done something beneficial for me that I will do something in return? To calling people who are following the way of Jesus to be the initiators of forgiveness and mercy and grace and thereby creating new cycles of positive reciprocity. You are called to be the initiator of forgiveness. You are called to be the initiator of grace and mercy. And by doing so, it's not a denial of these sorts of biological unctions to return that in kind. It's an acknowledgement of God's design in that. And what the way of Jesus does is it calls people to rightly order the things that might still be broken and under the fall to bring out the goodness of God's design and his created order in this function. Think of Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. It's direct reciprocity right there in the Sermon on the Mount. The third rule was indirect reciprocity. So let's review, again, if these are new to you. Indirect reciprocity is based on reputation and introduces the element of reputation into the decision-making process. Individuals assess the reputation of others and are more inclined to cooperate with those known to have a history of cooperative behavior. What does the way of Jesus have to say and have to do with indirect reciprocity? Well, let's remember again that indirect reciprocity has to do with social currency and reputation. 
So keeping that in mind, let's think about how the way of Jesus organizes a community that isn't without social hierarchy. So I think this is a misnomer. I think it's like a a more modern socialist, you know, so I, I think this is a political reinterpretation of like early church book of Acts community to think that, well, the kinds of community that Jesus was out to organize are ones without any sort of hierarchy. And I think that's wrong. I think it's absurd. I don't think you can even envision sort of a group that's without any sort of hierarchy. But what I do think the way of Jesus does is that instead of organizing communities that don't have any social hierarchy at all, which can't even fathom, it's just so silly, instead it incentivizes mimicking the other-centered love of Christ and service of Christ as a way of gaining group status and authority as a leader in the community. So how do you become uh, a leader in the community? How do you gain social currency? How does your reputation rise in a community of Christ followers? It should be through mimicking the other-centered love and sacrifice of Christ. And you can see this codified in one of the earliest Christian hymns that's recorded in Philippians 2, commonly referred to as the Christ hymn. So here's Paul writing in Philippians 2, quote, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. End quote. How do you gain social status? What should you be striving after? It's not to be flattened out that there, there is no distinction among people. Paul says we run this race with endurance. We're, we're, we're running after that victor's crown. But what does it look like? It doesn't look like I gain my status at your cost or loss. It means I mimic the pattern of Christ, and in doing so, I am exalted by God, not by, you know, these these motivating factors, these other motivating factors that are fallen, that are less good, that I would try to gain my status in a group by simply being the best at something, that I would simply try to impress or show these sorts of external demonstrations of group fidelity. No, it's in mimicking Christ's other-centered love. It's in mimicking the cross. It's in copying this Christ hymn in Philippians 2. Instead of a race to the top, it's a race to the bottom. Now let's talk about network reciprocity. Quick reminder again, network reciprocity has to do with how individuals and groups interact in a networked manner with groups, with intragroup networked activity, but also groups connected together in networks. And that our awareness of these networks of social groups and social grouping, that we take that into account when we consider cooperation. Now, Christian community was never intended to bear the markings of isolated in-groups. 
From very early on, networks of church communities across the Roman Empire were emerging. Though these communities represented diverse ethnic groups and people of divergent socioeconomic status, the shared guiding story of Christ and the shared rituals like singing, baptism, and communion created networks of shared support and reciprocity. Eventually, more organized, hierarchical structures emerged that could increase the shared strength of the increasingly global network that we call now the Church, with a capital C. The growth of the early Christian movement was, at least in part, due to the appeal of belonging to this new kind of networked human community. There was an appealing factor to it to someone from the outside. Yes, there was a lot of strangeness to many people in the Roman world. They're used used to typical kin selection cooperation, and they're seeing these familial bonds, and now you're seeing people in different places that would have been typically divided um, by their ethnic background. And under the Roman rule, the idea was like, well, what unites people is Caesar, under the banner of Rome, under the banner of Caesar is what unites these diverse peoples together. And we kind of get that as Americans. There's kind of been this American emphasis. Yes, you might be an immigrant. You might be Irish. You might be African-American. You might be Chinese. But when you move here, you settle under the banner that unites us all, which is being an American. But this was kind of this counter-narrative, which was, no, when you enter into following the way of Jesus in your baptism, you are now part of this broader network, not just the church community in your city. You live in Corinth, but guess what? You've got brothers and sisters in Ephesus, and you've got brothers and sisters in Rome and Colossia. You've got brothers and sisters all over. And as this expands, you have this expanding network of cooperation and reciprocity that happens. So much so that, you know, even in our own church community, we are cognizant of the people that we support on the other side of the globe who might be pastoring churches in our denomination or our network together. It's such a fascinating thing that the Christian movement and the way of Jesus did by creating these really, really appealing global communities. So, you know, you might get a job. And let's say you got a brand new job that required you for some reason to to move across the country and you're a Christian and you don't know anybody, you don't have any family there. You know what you have? You have a church community there somewhere. And that's probably one of the first things you end up looking for if you're a Christian and you move to a new new part of town or country or even to, uh, to a different side of the world. You're... You might not have family there, but you have a different kind of family that's been networked together. And so there is this motivation, there's this deep appeal for group belonging and this sense that when I go to this place, I'm pretty sure that I can, I can find people I can trust there because we have a shared story and we have these shared rituals. We have the shared values that's been organized under the lordship of Jesus. Finally, let's consider the implications of the way of Jesus on group selection, which was the fifth of Novak's 
governing rules for cooperation. Remember that group selection has to do with the survival and success of cooperative groups over non-cooperative ones. Cooperative groups can outperform non-cooperative groups in terms of survival, reproduction, resource acquisition, etc., and therefore that provides incentives for individuals to cooperate within the group. The portrayal of Christ as the slain lamb enthroned in heaven signifies the victory of cooperative groups who mimic the pattern of the lamb over non-cooperative groups who attempt to maintain their community order and bonds through violence, fear, resource hoarding, and aggressive competition. In this way, Jesus is the prototype of a new kind of humanity. The judgment that descends on groups that operate under the sway of satanic principalities and powers is that they are ultimately deemed ineffective and unsustainable over time. This is why the Nazis didn't win and why Nazis will never ultimately win. The judgment is their collapse and disintegration. And the hard part about this is that it often seems like groups that operate under principles of violence, fear, resource hoarding, and aggressive competition seem like they are winning in the short term. But I would argue that this has to do with the sort of mustard seed way of the kingdom of God, that it's small, but it grows and grows and grows. And it's a long-term game, not a short-term game. And when we're talking about you know, an evolutionary timescale, a cosmic or geological timescale. We are talking about a very long game here. Groups that appear in the short term, like they're winning through violence, fear, resource hoarding, etc., aggressive competition. Groups that appear like they're winning, operating off of these social Darwinist narratives, do not win in the long term. And the the prototype, Jesus, the, the, the vision of John the Revelator as, as a, a slain, with Jesus as a slain lamb enthroned over the cosmos, is a promise to the people of God in the first century. This is what Revelation is about. It's not about, you know, Kirk Cameron movies. It's not about, are you going to get a computer chip in your hand that's the mark of the beast? That is not what it's about. Revelation is an encouragement to the first century church couched in the apocalyptic language of apocalyptic literature to encourage them that play the long game. It might look like the emperor is winning and he's winning through violence, fear, resource hoarding, but the way of Jesus will win in the end. Stay steadfast. Stand firm. This is the vision of the future that you're, you have to live into in the now and trust that we're playing the long game here. And in the end, the judgment will come on those principalities and powers in their eventual collapse and disintegration, but the way of the Lamb will continue. This is the message of the book of Revelation. There you go. There's a, that was just a side, um, side podcast there for you. And I get it. This is a radical claim, and I'll be very honest with you. This, to, to me, is this is probably the most difficult thing for me 
to continue to trust and believe in, especially when I look around the world, because I am a short-term creature. I'm here today. I'm gone tomorrow. I am like a passing vapor. I'm a blade of grass. My lifespan is so, so short that it's hard for me to not look at the short-term victories of people who operate under what I would say is the, the fallen, demonic perversion of God's long-term game. And they operate under violence, fear, aggression. When I see them, what looks like they're winning in the short term, it takes a lot of faith to continue to believe that the way of the slain lamb will be victorious. I'll be honest with you. Some days I don't feel like believing it. And I think if we're all honest, it sometimes looks like this isn't the way that's going to win in the end. It's a radical claim of faith. But is there any evidence? Is there any evidence of creation displaying some glimpses of its truth? Dr. William Muir is an evolutionary biologist at Purdue University. In the 1990s, Muir tested a group selection theory on hens. Muir's original aim was to enhance egg-laying productivity by selectively breeding the top producers that he affectionately called super chickens. His hypothesis was uncomplicated. By breeding these super chickens in each new flock of hens, one could systematically improve the overall productivity of the egg-laying hen population over generations, right? He's kind of playing on what was the, the, the Nazi eugenics idea and the Lebenspawn, right? They were selectively breeding the most fit, the best-looking and healthiest ideal German young men and young women to six. To, to produce a, a super race. And so Muir is like playing with this idea with hens. So Muir here sets up a comparative competitive study and he separates two groups of hens. The first group consisted of nine hens, which were just average in their egg laying abilities, but were generally friendly, docile, and cooperative. The second group was composed of the super chickens the hens laying the most eggs in each consecutive generation. But they were also the most competitive, the most aggressive, the most violent. These two groups lived together and shared pens while they produced eggs. Since this was a numerical experiment, measuring productivity was simple. You only had to tally the eggs laid to see who was more successful. After the study came to a close, Muir's findings were somewhat surprising. The chickens in the control group remained plump, healthy, and well-feathered, and even showed an increase in egg production since the start of the experiment. On the other hand, the super chickens actually produced fewer eggs. They decreased their reproductive success. Their group suffered from the chaos that came with their hyper-competitive aggression, only three super chickens managed to survive after many of them were violently pecked to death by their peers. Does this experiment prove my claim that the way of Jesus wins out in the end? Certainly not. But at the very least, 
Signs like these at least make a counterpoint to the claim of the old social Darwinists and pagan worshippers of Odin and Zeus alike, that the order of the world is organized around violence, fear, and competition. Nazis and super chickens alike are doomed to fail in the end. But the meek will inherit the earth. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. Speaking of cooperation, working together, this whole podcast only works because you feel like it's worthwhile. I give this away, don't want to sell advertisements to you, think there's a better way, and I think the better way is maybe something like direct reciprocity, indirect reciprocity, network reciprocity, however you want to look at it. Uh, I share this because I think it's a benefit. If you're finding it to be beneficial, would you consider supporting this work that I'm doing by becoming a patron on Patreon? Along with that, there's additional reciprocity <laughs> to be received where I do offer bonus episodes, Q&A episodes, um, Zoom chats where uh, we have group conversations. Um, there's even opportunities if you want for one-on-one -on -one conversations on Zoom as well. So take a look at the description below where you can find a link to support this work that I'm doing and stay tuned the weeks ahead for a really fun, exciting announcement. I want to give an extra special thanks to those who have been supporting my work so generously and faithfully. Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John-Marc, Josie, J-Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P, Selena, Tim. Thank you all for your generous support. I can't do this without you. I'd love to hear from you in the discussion forum or on our Discord server, or you can reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Amleitner. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your objections, your follow-up questions. Bring them all to me. Let's keep the conversation going. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.